0: Hi, this is Rob Hendrickson and the uh, <coughs> crew of the Oregon Poison Center. This is our journal club uh, for this month, and the topic is the neonatal abstinence syndrome and specifically the neonatal opioid abstinence syndrome. Uh, so we're going to go through five articles, uh, and I will start with an article uh, entitled Neonatal Drug Withdrawal from the uh, American Academy of Pediatric Committee on Drugs. This is published in Pediatrics in 1998, um, the, and it's really just a sort of overview uh, from that time period. So, in drug exposure um, may lead to neonatal intoxication or withdrawal. Uh, and multiple substances may be abused, and they have a very, uh, int- very long table of all of the different types of drugs that, that uh, um, fetuses may be exposed to. Uh, incidence of drug exposure to newborns is sort of tough to measure because it completely depends on your geographical uh, uh, and socioeconomic uh, area uh, that you're studying, and drug-exposed newborns have reported anywhere from 3% to 50%, uh, much, much higher in the urban settings. Um, but of about 4 million drug-abusing women of childbearing age, just about 3% are believed to continue to use drugs during their pregnancy. Uh, So that might give you some idea uh, nationwide. So some compounds are used uh, during pregnancy demonstrate to cause withdrawal. It's a fairly short list, uh, and it's listed in Table 2, and it uh, includes alcohol, barbiturates, caffeine, uh, epoxide, clomipramine, diazepam, ethchlorobinyl, butethamide, hydroxazine, meprobamate uh, and this was published before uh, the SSRIs and some other uh, withdrawal syndromes were recognized. Uh, but pretty interesting list and a uh, combination of some very, very common things and some things that nobody really uses anymore. So, um, the, uh, those uh, infants, those neonates that are exposed to opioids or heroin in utero, uh, withdrawal signs will develop somewhere between 55 and 94 percent. Uh, of those newborns. And although I've seen numbers that are uh, pretty, pretty uh, wide range, that's a wide range to begin with, but I've seen even uh, wider range of numbers reported. Uh, and the other most commonly abused drug in the nation, cocaine, uh, doesn't really have an abstinence syndrome that is associated with it, but um, clearly those children can develop a syndrome, but it's more uh, felt to be a cocaine intoxication syndrome, not a cocaine withdrawal syndrome. Uh, and they do get some of the agitation that has been reported with opioid withdrawal syndrome as well. So um, neurobehavioral abnormalities uh, with um cocaine exposure uh, often start on about day two and three and can in some ways mimic opioid withdrawal syndrome. So what kind of clinical presentation? Well, the, the signs of opioid withdrawal are largely CNS irritability and GI dysfunction and about 2 to 11% of infants withdrawing from opioids will develop seizures. Um, The time of withdrawal onset depends on a lot of different things. When the last drug exposure was for the mother, what the dose is, what the metabolism, the half-life of the drug. um, And women who um, have not used the drug for more than a week before delivery have a much lower rate of withdrawal syndrome in their uh, neonates. So, um... But in general, uh, ethanol begins very, very early. Ethanol withdrawal syndrome begins very early, within hours, 3 to 12. Uh, Methadone uh, usually occurs 48 to 72 hours, but may be delayed up to a couple of weeks. And barbs, 4 to 7 days. Diazepam, up to 12 days. Uh, And then uh, long-acting things like as epoxide um, can be uh, delayed up to 21 days. So... Um, And most studies demonstrate that the larger the opioid dose, in particular methadone in late pregnancy, uh, the higher risk of neonatal withdrawal syndrome as well. Of course, very few people just, well, some people just have one choice drug, but many people have uh, 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 multiple poly drug use. So um, there's some interesting data presented here that uh, if you are an opioid and cocaine user, that... uh, yeah, there's some studies in humans that show that um, it actually, the cocaine actually decreases your opioid patrol syndrome uh, in the newborn, which is very interesting. Now, I wouldn't recommend giving cocaine to someone before the delivery <laughs> in order to decrease their <laughs> symptoms, but they give a couple of uh, theoretical reasons, and it seems like the polydrug users actually do better than those that just use an opioid. Um, So what kind of differential diagnosis? Well, you know, withdrawal has been, it has a slightly delayed onset usually from opioids. Um, It looks like GI distress. People have diagnosed it as colic. People have diagnosed it as infection. Um, Metabolic disorders, um, hypoglycemia, hypocalcemia. So um, obviously it needs to be a, a high index of suspicion when a, uh, drug-using or opioid-using a mother delivers to a child. So um, note um, maternal self-reporting, not too surprisingly, frequently underestimates the, the amount of drugs that they use. Uh, and urine screening of the newborn has a very high false-negative rate. So uh, meconium drug testing is, uh, has a smaller false-negative rate. Uh, it is not perfect, but uh, it is much more likely to identify drug use uh, than neonatal urine testing. So there are a couple of maternal characteristics that um, suggest screening. In other words, a, a person comes to deliver. Um, and these are the characteristics that might uh, suggest screening for drug use in the mother, um, since it's actually much easier to test the mother than it is to test the neonate accurately. Um, no prenatal care, previous unexplained fetal demise, precipitous uh, delivery, uh, abrupt placenta, uh, hypertensive episodes, severe mood swings, uh, cerebral vascular accidents, myocardial infarction, and repeated spontaneous abortion. Uh, and infant characteristics that might uh, s- uh, make you test would be prematurity, unexplained intrauterine growth retardation, uh, neurobehavioral abnormalities, and the neonate urogenital abnormalities. Uh, atypical vascular incidents like vascular accidents, MIs, or necrotizing enterocolitis. So those are all things that they recommend considering drug testing in the neonate. Um, preterm infants, interestingly, have been described as having a much lower risk of drug withdrawal, and it's thought that maybe that's just because their CNS is not um, developed uh, entirely. Uh, but I don't think that that is... Uh, completely uh, well studied. So supportive care is probably the mainstay of most of the therapy because um, pharmacologic therapy prolongs hospitalization. Um, sort of just like in anyone withdrawing from a drug, giving them a similar drug will, will prolong their withdrawal. Um, so supportive care is the real uh, uh, core and it includes swaddling to decrease, decrease sensory stimulation frequent small feedings of hyperchloric uh, formula, intravenous fluids, and uh, replacement of electrolytes, etc. So there's really no... The, the, the known benefit of pharmacologic therapy is really amelioration of clinical signs. The uh, long-term morbidity, morbidity is... Um, whether it's decreased by pharmacologic management is, uh, remains unproven and is unclear. So the real reason to uh, treat is to ameliorate clinical signs... Um, not because they will necessarily do better in the long run or not. I don't think that that's uh, well worked out. Yeah. So indications for drug therapy, they suggest seizures. Seems reasonable. Poor feeding, diarrhea, and vomiting that results in excessive weight loss and dehydration. Inability to sleep, and then fever unrelated to infection. And, of course, they comment that it's essential that infection, hypoglycemia, hypocalcemia, hypomagnesemia, hypothyroidism, CNS hemorrhage, and anoxia are all ruled out. As clinical signs and that you don't just chalk up um, these severe symptoms in a neonate uh, just because uh, the mother used an opioid. So pharmacologic management, uh, no surprise here. You, if it's chosen, should be a relatively specific therapy. In other words, give them something that's similar to what their mother was taking uh, and that should uh, do the best to relieve <clears> their <throat> treatment, their therapy. Now, There are some comparative studies, and the next paper goes through them in more detail. So I'm just going to go kind of just an overview of different types of agents uh, that they mention, Um, So specific pharmacologic agents. Um, Tincture of opium, and this is where it gets really confusing, Um, and it's probably a reason why this isn't used quite as much as it used to be. Um, the tincture of opium is opium, um, and it is 10 milligrams of morphine per milliliter. It's also caused, called deodorized tincture of opium, or DTO. Hmm. Unfortunately, there's also a diluted tincture of opium, <laughs> also DTO, that is 25 times diluted. Deodorized tincture of opium, or 0.4 milligrams per milliliter, and you can understand why um, these things are not used as much because 25-fold dosing errors occurred uh, with some frequency when it was used. Wow. On the other hand, it is morphine, and it's um, probably uh, uh, for most opioid uh, withdrawal syndromes or uh, abstinence syndrome is probably uh, the best thing to give to relieve symptoms. So they suggest starting a dose of the diluted solution at 0.1 mils per kilo, or two drops per kilogram every four hours. Um, There's also a uh, substance called paragoric, which is the same concentration as one of the DTOs, that's the diluted tincture of opium, 0.4 milligrams per milliliter, uh, and the same dosing regimen uh, for that. Unfortunately, it also, in addition to morphine, contains a whole bunch of other things with contains noscopine and papabrin which are um, naturally occurring opioids um, it also contains camphor which is a CNS stimulant and uh, contains benzoic acid which uh, if uh, has been reported to cause the neonatal gasping syndrome uh, not in the doses that it's uh, available but certainly in uh, a higher dose and it also contains ethanol, as well as glycerin. So there's a lot of uh, issues with um, with paragoric as well. Uh, Morphine, uh, either parenterally or oral, is also used. There are some issues with uh, parenteral morphine has uh, phenol in it, uh, and there's some evidence, uh, a couple of cases of severe jaundice in small infants from phenol, uh, and the oral preparation of morphine has much uh, fewer uh, other things like additives and alcohol, so probably a better choice. Methadone is also used. Um, much longer half-life uh, contains a very small amount, 8% of ethanol. And then they go on to mention clonidine. We're going to hear about that in um, one of the later <coughs> articles. Um, but it does seem to be somewhat effective and effective. Um, the, uh, all, even though it's it's classically in that, you know, feared one pill can kill and toddler list in studies. So it doesn't seem to uh, cause uh, hypotension or many adverse effects. They go on to mention chlorpromazine, which I don't think anybody's using. It has a series of side effects that are a major issue. And then phenobarb has also been used, and it seems that it relieves the GI signs, but not the, uh, I'm sorry, it relieves the CNS hyperactive behavior, but not the GI signs. Uh, so there's still a risk of dehydration from vomiting and diarrhea. Um, and finally, uh, diazepam uh, has been used as well. Uh, there are multiple issues with diazepam, uh, including uh, the neonate's uh, uh, difficulty or uh, decreased ability to metabolize it, um, seizures. Uh, that are late-in-onset, thought to maybe be a withdrawal syndrome from diazepam. It contains benzyl alcohol, sodium benzoate, ethanol, propylene glycol. So there are some issues with that as well. And finally, they go on to say um, that naloxone use um, after delivery in neonates has been associated with seizures, likely due to opiate withdrawal syndrome. Um, so they recommend against its use if the mother is an opiate user. Uh, and then um, they mentioned that long-term morbidity remains <clears throat> unstudied, and there's really no evidence that um, treatment or non-treatment of the neonatal abstinence syndrome has any long-term benefit. Uh, but, of course, any study done on this has huge number of confounding variables, including uh, the, the child's environment and uh, the caregivers and uh, their drug use, etc., etc. So they finish up with just saying that uh, a couple of recommendations. Screen for maternal substance abuse seems reasonable. Uh, drug withdrawal uh, should be considered in, uh, as a diagnosis in infants. Um, and um, pharmacotherapy should be used for seizures. Um, and, uh, and consider withdrawal in uh, neonates with vomiting, diarrhea, uh, poor weight gain, and the symptoms that we mentioned before. So with that... I'm going to hand the mic over to Keith French. He was our toxicology fellow. He's going to go through the Cochrane
1: Collaboration's review of um, opiate withdrawal and newborn infants. Thank you, Rob. Uh, so the latest Cochrane review came out uh, this year, and it was an update of the review from 2005. Um, in that four-year span, uh, one new study was added, uh, with no additional information. Um, over that time frame, so there wasn't a whole lot of change in the overall Cochrane review. This is actually a very detailed, very robust of 40 studies that they looked at over the last several decades, seven of which were included in this Cochrane review, and 33 were excluded based on not very good evidence or study design. And interestingly, one of the conclusions is even in the seven studies that were included in this review, None of them were really that very uh, designed very well, et cetera. So (coughs) their background is that the neonatal abstinence syndrome due to opioid withdrawal may result in several things that we worry about. So disruption of this mother-infant relationship, sleep-wake abnormalities, feeding difficulties, weight loss, and seizures, all of which Rob has discussed uh, already or will be discussed uh, a bit in the future as well. What they were hoping to do is to assess both the effectiveness and safety of using an opiate when compared to other sedative or non-pharmacologic treatments with this syndrome. Um, Again, this updates the previous Cochrane review several years earlier. Uh, Enrolling criteria uh, were ones in which the child actually had NAS. Uh, Moms were opioid-dependent. Uh, with or without other medications that they were addicted to. They wanted an 80% follow-up rate. And randomization needed to be quasi-random at worst or truly randomized at best. Um, And the the way they did is they had individual reviewers of the data, and each one individually assessed quality and extracted data independently. Uh, Their primary outcomes were control of symptoms, Seizure occurrence, mortality, and neural development issues, though none of the studies they found commented at all on any neurodevelopmental uh, parameters. Um, and then basically, data was put together and differences of opinion were sort of worked out, sort of in a round table discussion. And then the graded papers ABC based on quality of data. Um, so the seven studies that they included had a total of 585 infants. Um, though some of these infants were probably double counted because two of the studies probably counted the same patients, so they did their best to exclude those as as best as they could. And then they took a look at the data. And just to, so since you guys don't have this in front of you, there are two studies from 1983, one from 84 one from 86, one from 1977, one from 1995, and one from 2004. So this is really, really old data. So not a lot of this is, or at least this is not a contemporary sort of topic that people are actively studying or doing good studies to get better information about this. And historically, a lot of this is observational data. Um, I'm going to just skip ahead here briefly to the author's conclusions and their summary in plain language, because a lot of the details on the individual studies, it's its easy to kind of get lost up in the numbers because they do include so much. But I'll try to capture that again at the end um, by looking at the data a little bit in a slightly different way. So their conclusions are that opiates, as compared to supportive care only, appear to reduce the time to regaining birth weight, and to reducing the duration of supportive care, but overall increase the duration of hospital stay, um, and there's no evidence uh, of any effect on treatment failure when using opioids. And they go on to define treatment failure here as basically failing to improve whatever score you use to sort of define NAS. Um, when compared to, you know, bar, uh, to barbiturates, opiates may reduce the incidence of seizures overall, but th- again, there's no evidence of treatment failure when comparing those two. Uh, there's a single study that shows reduction in duration of treatment and nursery admissions for infants who are given morphine. When compared to diazepam, opiates reduce the incidence of treatment failure, um, and despite all of this, they make another note that there is significant methylodogic limitations um, and therefore including all of the studies is just not a very practical thing to do.
0: Uh,
1: plain language summary, so an opiate so opiates such as morphine or dilute tincture of opium should probably be used as initial treatment to ameliorate withdrawal symptoms in newborn infants with opiate withdrawal. Due to maternal opiate use pregnancy. That's exactly what Rob just concluded Mm -hmm. from the paper he talked about. Using, so the use of opiates, you know, commonly like methadone or heroin by pregnant moms may result in withdrawal syndrome in their newborn infants. That makes sense. I don't think we needed the Cochrane review to sort of demonstrate that. <laughs> um, and that's significant because this may disrupt the mother-infant relationship and lead to all sorts of sleep-wake cycle difficulties, weight loss, seizures, all things we don't want to happen. Um, and treatment for newborn infants used to ameliorate these symptoms and reduce complications include opiates or sedatives or just supportive care. Um, trials of opiates compared to sedatives or other non-pharmacologic treatments have generally been of poor quality. Um, individual trials have reported that using an opiate compared to phenobarbital may reduce the incidence of these sort of untoward uh, effects that we want to avoid. However, no overall effect was found on treatment failure rate. Um, and then they go on a list of few things, and opiates such as morphine or lute, tincture of opium, should probably be used as initial treatment for opiate withdrawal syndrome. That's basically their conclusion. If you take opiates when you're pregnant, it's not a good idea. Your baby's going to withdraw. And so is there any evidence to suggest that opiates or benzos or non-pharmacologic treatment is better versus anything head-to-head? I'm not going to go over more background information. I think Rob pretty much covered that. But uh, just for reference, the American Academy of Pediatric recommends that for infants with confirmed drug exposure, the indications for drug therapy should be those things we talked about, seizures, poor feeding, diarrhea, vomiting, weight loss, inability to sleep, uh, and fever. Or you can use one of the abstinence scores to uh, start treatment, and their recommendations is for opiates for opiate withdrawal syndrome, specifically tincture of opium. So that's what they're recommending that we use. Um, Can I interrupt for just a second?
2: Absolutely. That's also the board
3: question. Tincture. There you go. go. So 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 it sounds like that's the standard of care as by the boards and by Cochrane both. So we'll have that for the articles that are going to come up with uh, Uh, testing new things for the shortly.
1: Very good. So right. when you listeners out there are taking your pediatric boards <laughs> and you a question, the answer is, oh, tincture of opium. You, you heard it here, from one of your first <laughs> <folks>. <laughs> uh, Okay, So they do list each study individually, and to read through every single one may be a little bit too robust and really out of the scope of what the spirit of this Cochrane review is supposed to be. Um, There is one little piece of data I'd like to go through here quickly just to sort of sum things up. And so just a couple questions to answer. So comparing opiates to supportive care in looking at treatment failure, there's really no significant difference on either opiates or supportive care. In comparing opiates versus supportive care with duration of treatment, it strongly favors supportive care. Uh, strong support of supportive care when it comes to duration of hospital stay, meaning if you want to get kids out of the hospital longer, you give them supportive care. Um, if you want them to spend less time in special care units, you give them supportive care alone. <laughs> if you want them to get fatter faster, you give them opiates. <laughs> <laughs> If you um, compare opiates to supportive care, and you look at the duration of supportive care per day in minutes, you give them opiates. If you compare opiates to phenobarb, and you look at seizure control, opiates are preferred. Opiates are preferred uh, over phenobarb uh, if you want to reduce duration of treatments. And lastly, opiates are preferred over phenobarb uh, when it comes to overall admission in nurseries. The rest of the parameters that they looked at, and there was lots of them, there was really no sti- significant difference between either one. So I guess in those circumstances, it's your local protocol that dictates what you want to do and how you best treat those folks. Um, but the bottom line is that there's just not a lot of really good data, and the board answer is tincture. of <laughs> opium. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very swaddle, swaddle, swaddle.
0: Uh, okay, so the next two articles, we're going to look at um, adjuncts to um, opioid therapy for neonates. So this article is on sublingual uh, buprenorphine, and I'm going to hand the mic over to
3: Zane Arles. All right, so the title of this article is Sublingual Buprenorphine for the Treatment of Neonatal abstinence Syndrome, a Randomized Trial, which technically it is, but a little bit boastful, perhaps. It's really more correctly defined, I think, as a pilot study, which was open label and non-blinded, but randomized. So, the way they did this, this was out of the folks in uh, Jefferson, in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, First of all, a little bit of the setup on buprenorphine, why pick picked that over something else, is that it's this Newer drug. It's been. It's not that newer of a drug, but the new use of it has been as a drug to detoxify uh, parents from narcotic uh, use. Not just parents, but people that aren't parents or are narcotic users. But the best part of it is that it's a partial uh, agonist antagonist. That, that the higher doses it tends to antagonize opiates, and therefore the feeling is you can't really overdose on it because the more you take. The more antagonist effect you get, then you would actually go into withdrawal, so sort of, it has some safety built into it. It's got a longer half-life, so that may make it easier to use the dictionary of opium. that's used every four hours. So with that background, the study design was a single-site, open-label. Uh, they randomized 26 neonates, and they either got a sublingual buprenorphine, which was interesting because I'll tell you how they did that in a second or um, neonatal opium solution and they used the Finnegan scale which seems to be used in many of these for uh, grading their um, uh, degree of response and if they had any consecutive three scores that added up to greater than 24 on the Finnegan scale um, you know there that was the inclusion criteria they excluded, A fair number of folks, just to keep clear that this was sort of a very hand-picked population, so nobody with congenital malformations, nobody with intrauterine growth retardation, nobody with active medical illnesses, nobody whose parent, whose mom was also taking benzos or alcohol or maternal use of either of those within 30 days before uh, birth, Um, they also ruled out anyone who was taking any immune use of any cytochrome P450 3A inhibitors because they would interact with the buprenorphine. So they went through all the drugs that these kids were on. Um, And so, you know, a hand-picked population of isolated um, opioid withdrawal syndrome in children. So they either got one or two solutions. The first solution was this produced, -produced, home-produced batch of sublingual buprenorphine Um, They received 13.2 mics per kilo per day in three divided doses. And they got this by taking the IV injectable uh, buprenorphine solution, which is Buprenex, and they had to suspend it in 100% ethanol and then make it into a syrup with sucrose. And the final concentration of buprenorphine was 006 Milligrams per mil, and and then they inserted this under the tongue and then gave the child a pacifier so that it would reduce swallowing, which is important because puprenorphine is not well absorbed orally, which is why it's used um, sublingually. And if the volume by weight was calculated to be more than a half a cc, they got two separate aliquots of the buprenorphine separated by a few minutes and a little pacifier in between so they wouldn't swallow them or or an attempt to do that. And they had a score for escalating doses. They had a rescue protocol um, if the kids score too high on the scale. And after they were stabilized for three days on a stable dose, then they started weaning them until their Finnegan scores were less than eight. Um, and then there was sort of an ultra-rescue breakthrough where if they can get Phenobarb, if they have had a maximum daily dose of buprenorphine exceeding 39 micrograms per kilogram. Um, and they also tried to do a pharmacokinetic study of this, although I'll tell you why it didn't work out so well. And they got serum levels of both buprenorphine and its metabolite, nor buprenorphine, in an attempt to figure out some pharmacokinetics, but they had some Problems which they acknowledged with that end of the study. The opposite arm, the other randomized arm, got standard of treatment for Thomas Jefferson University, which included uh, morphine, uh, 0.4 milligrams per kilogram per day in six divided doses, so a lot more complicated to use that way, with the ability to escalate up 10% per day based on the Finnegan scores. It was also diluted in a final alcohol concentration that turned out to be 0.19%, so all these are elixirs with alcohol um, as well, and they also had a protocol for breakthrough treatment with Phenobarb um, when they reached the milligram per kilogram per day of morphine. Um, and all patients were observed for two days after they stopped therapy completely just to make sure there wasn't any complications. Um, And the weight they used was not the actual weight of the day. Kind of important because some of these kids were in the study for as long as 30 days, but they used the birth weight to calculate the dose. So even as these kids were getting bigger, their dose proportionally per milligram per kilogram was actually getting lower. Um, they tried to do this pharmacokinetic study. It, it sort of it, it failed, but there's one important part of it that uh, I think makes some sense or room for another study, which they imply they're about to do. So the results, the important part. Um, they were both similar as far as gestational ages, birth weights, APGAR scores, all that, so they're well-matched. All the mothers were maintained on methadone. Which is what they got them after birth. Um, as far as the pharmacokinetics, they ended up getting over 200 samples. There's a couple of outliers. There's concentrations really high, but mo- the vast majority, except for the three outliers, had certain concentrations that were less than 0.6 nanograms per milliliter. And why that number is important is they feel that the adult effective dose isn't until you get greater than 0.7 nanograms per milliliter. So they may have been underdosing when you to consider their conclusions bupromorphine, at least relative to what's an adult known uh, effect of certain concentration level um, and then they tr- and they also noticed that there was um, the ratio of the parent drug to the metabolite was different in children and they speculate on a bunch of reasons why that might have occurred that they may have immature enzymes that metabolize that et cetera. There was one bad adverse relatively adverse effect the second patient enrolled in the study and to their credit they kept going had a seizure. Um, generalized seizures 78 hours after the initial dose of buprenorphine, and they quickly up-titrated the child, um, but eventually they ended up giving that child phenomarb um, for that event. Um, he got an MRI, and he had a small subdural, which may or may not have something to do with why he had a seizure, but um, he was developmentally normal at a year and seizure-free at a year, and they ultimately followed that child up. So the efficacy part of this trial... There was a trend, but I don 't think it was statistically significant towards lower values in the buprenorphine treated group with the clinical outcomes as regarding both length of treatment and length of stay in the ICU, but overall, not statistically different between the two groups. Um, one patient had discontinued from buprenorphine, you know and they sort of analyzed the data without that, that one patient. the mean length of stay this is sort of the surprising part and maybe some input from our friends here at NICU. Mean length of stay was 28 days for these children with um, uh, buprenorphine. For the neonatal um, opium solution, it was 32 days, so it was maybe four days less, but that didn't seem statistically significant. And the mean length of treatment was about the same at 22 days for each group. Um, and that's really the only outcome measure they actually looked at. Um, they didn't really look at how they did on these scores. They had a scoring system to continue to dose them as long as they needed to be to be dosed, so neither of those numbers were um, um, uh, a statistical significant p-values were above 0.05. Uh, so I basically this is sort of like a pilot non-inferiority study, I mean, if you really want to look at it. Um, they tried a new drug that wasn't indicated in neonates before, buprenorphine. Uh, they dosed it perhaps from their pharmacokinetics at doses that were very conservative and below at least the therapeutic level for adults. And and whether or not that relates to neonates, nobody knows. Um, And they had about the same outcome. But really, these ended up with about a month in the ICU treating these kids for what is reasonably significant uh, neonatal uh, abstinence syndrome. The advantages they cite is it's a little bit technically easier to give this drug because you only have to give it three times a day instead of six times a day. Um, they talk about the, the ceiling effect, and at least, and they really didn't say anybody with the morphine group got over narcotized and needed to rescue narcan or anything like that. But the, the hypothesis is the ceiling protect effect of buprenorphine would protect you from sort of over Now, they say that our experience in the Boyden Center with. Children of an older age preschoolers who ingest buprenorphine is that doesn't work. They, when they take enough buprenorphine, the ceiling effect doesn't really happen and they get quite narcotized. Mm-hmm. And we've been sending these kids in for observation. The other a, a sort of theoretical advantage they talked to, about is well, you know, if we can give this under the tongue and this doesn't really have abuse potential, like you can't just send mom, former heroin, use her home with a bunch of morphine tincture, and expect her to use it correctly or not sell it uh, or use it herself. But with buprenorphine, because it's got you know, a limited, if any, abuse potential, because you, you're not going to get any you know, more not, uh, 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 CNS effects out of it because higher doses will have a ceiling effect in chronic users, perhaps in a carefully selected population of parents who've been you know, vetted by social work and everything else, you might be able to send them home Instead of, you know, 30 days in the hospital, somewhere along the line, you can kind of do home visits and have them do some of this stuff at home. Um, the only other thing is they noticed that breastfeeding was an exclusion because buprenorphine hasn't really been figured out whether it works well or whether it gets passed on in breast milk or not. Um, and they say breastfeeding, of course, is an important postpartum uh, thing for mom and child for binding and immunoglobulins and all that stuff. So, you know, they're wondering whether or not that really needs to be an exclusion for these studies in the future, and they're talking about you know what you know. Perhaps they will go further and explore more with using more aggressive levels and trying to get higher uh, drug levels above the 0.7 nanogram per mil, which are effective, and maybe the amount of dosing or fallouts or failures will be better if they use that <coughs> score. So, some promising again. I think should have been labeled a pilot study rather than a randomized trial, but I guess it always looks better that way. Uh, but interesting.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So a
3: good start, at least. There's a couple of, you know, a couple
0: of interesting things I thought in this as well. Um, I, it was unclear to me whether the people who, the kids who got morphine were getting sucrose with a pacifier as well, which I thought was kind of interesting because that's actually been studied with some things mm-hmm. to, you know, frankly, pacify <laughs> neonates and, and infants. So that was sort of interesting. And, uh, but as you said, uh, and some of the arguments for less frequent dosing, I think, fall out when you're talking about using methadone for the um, neonate uh, as opposed to morphine. But um, we'll see how this, uh, how this uh, plays out in the future. So the next one is another recent study. Um, looking at another adjunct to, and I think, you know, the background on some of this is that, um, opioids seem to work, but again, the children are in the NICU for 30 days or more. So I think some of these are an attempt to decrease that time. So, uh, the next paper, uh, is, uh, our emergency medicine resident, Ernst
4: so the article that I reviewed is entitled, Clonidine is an Adjunct Therapy to Opioids for Neonatal Abstinence Syndrome, a Randomized Controlled Trial. Again, um, the this is out of three centers in Baltimore, and the um, background on the study is that clonidine is um, used to help detoxify adults with opioid dependency, and they were wondering if there would be a benefit in terms of um, length of stay primarily uh, for using it in neonates. Um, so, um, they wanted to find out if it would reduce the duration of opioid detoxification or length of stay. Um, clonidine is an alpha adrenergic receptor agonist, and um, its effects are that it um, acts at the presynaptic receptors in midbrain and medulla, inhibit sy- sympathetic outflow, and decreases central catecholamine release, so you can get decreased blood pressure and heart rate. Um, some of the side effects include hypotension, rebound, uh, hypertension, AV block, and bradycardia, and they monitored for these effects closely in the neonates. Um the study design, as I said, was at three hospitals. They identified two hundred and twenty-one eligible infants, however, only eighty of them were enrolled um, and they were randomly assigned to the two different treatment groups. Um the criteria or the reasons for non-enrollment um Interestingly, included um, if the infant or mother were participating in another study, um, if they were started on diluted tincture of opium, which both groups got um, in the study uh, before they were enrolled, and then... if the, if the mom refused, and some of the reasons that the mothers gave for refusal were negative experiences with clonidine, not wanting to expose the infant to additional drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so the study was prospective, um, it was double-blind and placebo-controlled, and the two treatment groups uh, included um, clonidine plus diluted tincture of opium versus tincture of opium alone. Um, The inclusion criteria for infants were those between 0 and 14 days that were prenatally exposed to opioids, um, developing moderate to severe NAS defined as a Finnegan score of greater than or equal to 9 on two consecutive occasions. Um, They were excluded if they were less than 35 weeks, had intrauterine growth, retardation, um, congenital abnormalities, or any illness requiring oxygen, IV fluids, or medications, or if they were breastfeeding because of the possible confounder of breast milk opioids. Um, So the protocol included... uh, using oral clonidine one mic per kilo every four hours or equal volume of placebo for the control group. Diluted tincture of opium, um, was defined as being the one to 25 dilution, uh, that Rob had mentioned earlier, 0.4 milligrams per ml morphine equivalent. Um, they gave clonidine, um, in the dose that they gave it, based on one published report who uh, had used clonidine on seven newborns with um, neonatal abstinence syndrome. So, a uh, pretty small treatment group that that uh, dose was based on. Um, so, basically, um, they gave the uh, treatment uh, arm. And the control group, the uh, diluted tincture of opium plus clonidine, um, until symptoms were controlled, which was defined as uh, a mean daily Finnegan score of less than 9. And then once they were controlled, the infants were continued on the clonidine placebo or DTO dose um, for 48 hours. And then they gradually de-escalated the DTO dose by 0.05 mls per dose for each 24-hour period. So they had a de-escalation protocol. Um, they monitored all the vital signs and um, all their secondary outcomes, uh, weight, etc. cetera. Uh, the primary outcome that they identified was the total duration of therapy for neonatal abstinence syndrome. Their secondary outcomes included um the amount of DTO that was required to treat the syndrome, Um, treatment failure, which was defined as greater than 0.9 mils of DTO every three hours, seizures, weight gain, blood pressure, heart rate, hemoglobin, uh, saturation as measured by pulse ox. Um, So the... um, The the study was appropriately powered with forty infants in each group, uh, based on their calculations, Um, and the results are as follows. So, um, the um, actually first I'm going to go into what the infants were exposed to because that that's important as well. So, eighty nine percent of the infants were exposed to methadone, which, as you know, has a longer acting. Half life. Um, And it's important to note that the two groups were pretty closely matched, but not completely matched in this respect. In that the treatment arm or the clonidine group had 35 um, mothers who had been using methadone, and the placebo group only had 30. Um, And if you're talking about an N of 40, that makes a difference. Um, So 89% exposed to methadone, 69% to heroin, and 61% to cocaine plus an opiate during pregnancy. Um, As well, they had identified benzos in three of the 40 um, infants. um, And there was some exposure to antidepressants, including sertraline and paroxetine. So there was a little bit of polydrug in some of them. Otherwise, the groups were pretty closely matched. Um, so the primary outcome for the treatment group, the median length of therapy was 27% shorter than the placebo group. Um, and that is uh, significant. Um, 11 days with a uh, 95% confidence interval, 8 to 15, versus 15 days with 95% confidence interval, 13 to 17. Um, so... Um, the infants uh, that were prenatally exposed to methadone had median length of treatment that were three times longer than that uh, exposed to heroin alone, which is why it matters that there, were, there was a difference in the two treatment groups of how many infants were exposed to methadone. Um, if you considered only the infants exposed to methadone, however, the clonidine uh, was associated with a shorter length of therapy still, despite having more infants exposed in that treatment group. Um, For secondary outcomes, there was not any difference in the maximum weight loss um, or any of the other measures that they uh, measured. So um, there were five of the 80 infants that failed treatment, um, and these were all in the placebo group. Three of the infants uh, in the placebo group experienced seizures. Versus none in the clonidine group. Seven of the infants in the clonidine group uh, had rebounding effect, which was defined as um, an increasing Finnegan score, which necessitated that they restart the DTO after they had discontinued it. But even with restarting, the um, length of stay was still significantly lower. Um, blood pressures and heart rates were statistically lower in the clonidine group, um, but remained in the normal range for newborns, and no infants required interventions for low blood pressures. Um, So three of the infants in the clonidine and DTO group died within two months of life. These were all after discharge, however, from the hospital, and the causes of death were myocarditis, SIDS, and homicide by methadone overdose, which were all confirmed by autopsy. And these were felt to not be related to this study or the treatment with clonidine that they received since it was um, so much longer after discharge. So, the authors concluded that um, clonidine in combination with DTO um, stabilizes and detoxifies infants with moderate to severe NAS more rapidly than DTO alone. Um, The authors go into saying that um, despite having some rebound of a few of the infants in the clonidine treatment group, again, uh, there was still a shorter length of stay overall. Um, even though they had that extra couple of days where they had to restart treatment. Um, The serious adverse effects were felt not to be due to the clonidine. Um, There was also a case of SVT, uh, which is not a known side effect of clonidine. And then the three deaths that I already mentioned. Um, They did make the point that methadone exposure uh, results in longer pharmacotherapy than heroin exposure, uh, as well as um, that, the interpretation of the results um, is should be taken with a grain of salt because of the small number of patients. So this is actually would maybe considered a pilot study as well, since there were only forty in each in each arm. Um, they did do some population pharmacokinetics, which will be detailed in a future study. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice. <laughs> Very nice. Great. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, sort of interesting. Um, you know, needs to be repeated. Um, some things need to be fleshed out. So, the the dose of clonidine they were giving was one mic per kilo. So, you know, we talk about clonidine being one of the concerning things that children ingest, toddlers ingest. Uh, you know, in a kid who ingests 0.5 milligrams might get pretty ill, but <clears throat> this would be a five microgram dose for a five kilo neonate. So fairly uh, small dose uh, and it looks like they had no side effects uh, that were attributable to the as far as hypertension is not so so as the last paper we'll look at we'll switch our attention still on the opioid abstinence syndrome but this time we'll think about what we can give to the mothers um, and look at a study that compares bu- buprenorphine and methadone probably the two most common uh, treatments for opioid dependent patients and I'll pass the microphone over to our medical student, Alelia.
2: So this one doesn't claim to be um, anything but a pilot study.
1: Um, <laughs>
2: <Okay>. <laughs> it's primarily, the title is in the drug and alcohol dependence um, article, and it's called Buprenorphine Versus Methadone in Treatment of Pregnant opiate dependent Patients. And then they're looking at the effects on neonatal abstinence syndrome. So they looked at first methadone therapy and they only looked at the effects in women after 16 weeks gestational age. Um, The final number that were treated were 21 pregnant females, so a very small study. They were mainly looking at safety and efficacy so they could follow up with a larger multi-center trial. They were screened out of uh, 1,490 women, 30 met criteria, Um, the most common reasons they didn't meet criteria were because of outside the gestational age window, um, or they just failed to show up to the treatment program. Um, their primary outcome uh, included the number of neonates that were required that required morphine drops for NAS, NAS, um, the peak NAS score, the total amount of morphine drops used, um, and the total days in the NICU. So for the primary outcome of The treatment of NAS, um, so children that needed to be treated in the buprenorphine group were 20%. Remember, this is out of 21 women. um, And 45.5% in the methadone group required treatment. Um, So if those numbers were expanded to a larger uh, population and held true, we would have an NNT of 4. So you'd only need to treat 4 pregnant women with buprenorphine to avoid over methadone, to avoid one NAS, which is pretty substantial, but we can't do that conclusion. Out of just 21 females, it's not statistically significant. Um, so the buprenorphine uh, treated group had less primary outcome measures met um, without the change in any infant weight, height, or APGAR scores. Um, they... Later, the authors concluded that they would need um, at least 35 to 60 participants to make it statistically significant. Um, But that this would warrant more studies, since currently methadone is used more frequently, about 10 to 40% more often than people to treat pregnant women addicted to opiates. Um, I guess caveats of the study were... Um, there was an increased rate of hepatitis C in the methadone group, seven percent more, and fewer African Americans in the methadone group, 35% less. Um, but, uh, concomitant drug use was even between the two groups. They gave them vouchers to not use other drugs during the study, which, um, was somewhat effective, um, and they also pointed out that three years prior to this study, um, in 2002, Lejeune f- uh, found a 4% less frequency of treatment due to NAS in methadone um, being superior to buprenorphine um, treated mothers. So it was in, uh, in the face of this study. So I, I would say you can't really make much conclusions, mm-hmm. but it's suggestive and it would, it would uh, warrant further studies.
0: Yeah, clearly more studies are needed. I think uh, one of the reasons this study was done is because, you know, a couple years ago everyone was on methadone, and now, um, you know, non-pregnant women, there's a lot more people on buprenorphine for opioid addiction. And so clearly it's going to start increasing. And um, I don't think I agree with you. I don't think you can make some bold statement that one is better than the other. But I think, you know, uh, one of the reasons to do a pilot study like this is to decide whether we should you know, put the brakes on pregnant women taking buprenorphine and this doesn't suggest that we have to right now. Uh, so we'll see how things go and uh, it's been four years and they haven't published their big study yet. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. Well, that's about all I have. So if anyone else...
3: No, I, I think one of the you know things why maybe buprenorphine is not out there is because it's a new drug and no one knows what its long-term effects are on the fetus and so... Uh, of course, that eighty patient pregnant woman study is hard to, to figure out what those are going to be without thousands of patients enrolled, and so more people are going to feel comfortable with you know, methadone in that scenario. So it's it may be hard for them to do that big study that they they want to do.
0: Hundred to get forty patients. Right. Yeah.
3: So it's it's it's. Uh, <laughs> Probably a study that needs to be done to probably can understand the difficulty in trying to accomplish what they what they want to do because so, of so the fear of outcome with an unknown, untested drug that's you know has issues. So, but uh, all in all a topic ripe for more study, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> all right, that'll be all for this time.